Loved. Thank you, Ross. True, you're fired. Ross got the job now. <laughs> um, this story was a, a parish in, in France, and, and the priest was trying to figure out what he was going to, to preach on for that Good Friday. And um, what he finally did, I, I just, I love the simplicity and the image of it. And I know I've shared this a couple times, but that's okay. I'm going to share it again. Um, is, is after the worship ended, he walked out and he, he lit a candle and he brought it over to the crucifix and he held it up to the wounds of Christ, the brow, the hands, the feet. He blew out the candle and walked off stage and that was it. Um, I'm not bold enough to do that with you guys tonight. I, I, and, and I'm excited to get into some of the text that this story has. But I've always kept that in mind when it comes to Good Friday of that is the, really the goal is this service is a time of reflection. We, we pause and we reflect on the pain of the cross, which makes the celebration on Sunday so much sweeter, so much greater, when we understand the cost that came to make Sunday happen. So I, I want to start with us just reflecting on Christ at this time. And as we reflect on him, as we're keeping him in mind, um, I, I want you to, to, to understand something as we go into this text and the story that Tyler just read for us. Let me read these quick three passages, and I want you to hear this, this, common, this common thread that's going on. Don't worry about this. We'll get to that later. Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of of elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him and on the third day he'll be raised and they were greatly distressed. Matthew 20, while Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves on their way to Jerusalem and said to them on the way, see, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. What should the disciples have expected by the time they got to Jerusalem? This. And I, this framed it different for me this year as we we're thinking about Good Friday and, and this story is Jesus was fully aware of what he was walking into. So I think as we read the story, well, what happened was atrocious, and what happened left him being, uh, you know, I guess you could say, at, at, at the victimhood of, of the Roman Empire. He was not necessarily a victim in this. He walked into this fully aware of what was going to happen. He was intentional about what he was doing, and intentionality creates significance. If you and I were driving in my car and I just had music playing and the lyrics got weird, you wouldn't necessarily think that I'm trying to convey a message. You would just think, this is the song. But if I looked at you at that moment and said, I think about you when this song comes on, it's a different story. You would listen to those lyrics very carefully. I actually did this on accident with Sarah a long time ago. We were driving and there was this song. I said, oh gosh, this song's just been just on my mind and I, I can't get it out of my head. And, and, and so I played it for her. I didn't realize even that the, the lyrics were a, um, like a breakup song. And uh, 
which would have been a devastating loss for her. So, um, no, I know, I know I married up. But yeah, we had to then sort that out because she thought I was trying to say a message because I said this song is significant. So she thought it was then intentional. Intention creates significance. Now, I'm saying this because as we walk into the story and Jesus is walking into Jerusalem saying, this is what's going to happen when I get there and I'm going anyways. There's a ton of intentionality that surrounds this story. And so what we want to do as readers and interpreters of this text is we want to make sure we're paying attention to that. When did he show up? How did he show up? And I think the biggest uh, intentionality throughout all this is the season that he showed up. There was actually a holiday going on when he showed up. Who knows what holiday that was? I heard it faintly. Passover. It was the Jewish holiday of Passover. Now, that, that's important for us to, to remind ourselves of. Jesus chose this holiday to come and start this. And in fact, they, they, they expedited his trial because they wanted him to be killed before the Seder dinner, which would be Friday night. So they got it done by Friday afternoon. There's a ton of intentionality around this. And what does Passover celebrate? Passover celebrates the Exodus. When God delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt, and it's really the start of their relationship. God had been speaking to Abram, um, and, you know, and Jacob and all that, but, but there wasn't this, this covenant. There wasn't this relationship like we have with the people of, uh, of, of the Exodus starting at Mount Sinai. And what we're meant to do is, is as we hear all these parallels, we're meant to place ourselves in the same situation. We're meant to read this text through the lens of the Exodus story. And there are some incredible parallels. Even actually throughout Jesus' life and ministry, there are these parallels to Jesus as Moses. And Hebrews picks up on that, and Hebrews says that Jesus even exceeded Moses. Uh, but, I mean, Mount Sinai, the law is given. Jesus goes up on the, on the Sermon on the Mount and gives the new law of the new covenant. The amount of connections, both of them coming out of Egypt. It's pretty incredible. So the greatest of these circumstances, the one we want to hone on the most is the parallels with the Exodus story, and we're meant to lean on these. God wants us to view the work of Christ on the cross in parallel with the Exodus story. So uh, twice tonight, we're going to do a little bit of a, a visualization. I want you just to imagine the setting. Imagine the people, something like 1.2 million people at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, looking up and they see the top of the mountain is, is just filled with smoke and, and, and thunder and, and Moses goes up there, but they're, they're standing there and they're waiting. And where have they been from this point? Well, they were in slavery. And they were in little slave, literal slavery. But the New Testament teaches us that, that we also were enslaved to our sin, that we did not know another way. So we're going to view ourselves as being freed from the slavery the same way the Egyptians were, the, the, the Israelites were from Egypt. They were called out. I love this verse. Exodus 3, 7. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So too has God seen our misery our pain in a life of sin and is seeking to deliver us out of that into freedom from sin into a new relationship with him. 
We are saved by blood. At Mount Sinai, when the law is given, they made sacrifices and half the blood was thrown on the altar and the other half was thrown on the people as they passed by and as they said, everything that was just read, we will, we will do. They're invited into relationship as we are invited into relationship with Christ. Exodus 6, 7, I love this verse. God says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. This is the establishment of a relationship. That relationship language that us Christians love to use, it started here between God and a people as a whole. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. They were called to trust God as he leads them into salvation. For them, it was the salvation of the promised land, a land of their own. And for us, we have salvation and life in Christ here on this earth and after. All these parallels place our decision very similar, our decision today very similar to the decision that they had. They had been released after 400 years of slavery and are standing in the middle of the desert trying to decide, do I put my hope in this God or not? And that sounds silly for us to say, but if you know, Moses was up there for too long. They started looking for plan Bs. They, they said, well, let's just model ourselves by the, the other nation we just came out of. So they started building golden altars. And they, they, just, they just started from what they knew. We're in this similar situation. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, you still have this decision of, do I put my hope in God? Do I see God as my hope for my security in my future? Do we trust God to secure our hope? Within the, these passion narratives we're going to read, we see all these broken uh, human um, institutions. When Jesus walks into Jerusalem, the first thing he does is go to the temple. And he actually echoes a, a line from Jeremiah where Jeremiah stood at the exact same spot and said, this is meant to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. From the very, very beginning, and then, and then the, the, the religious elite are the ones who are persecuting him and, and trying to seek his death. So from the very beginning of entering Jerusalem, we see that the religious system is broken. Church, I'm going to tell you, church cannot be enough for you. God is enough for you. God is your hope. If your plan is just to fill every day of your life with more church program, because that's going to you know, fill that void in your life, you're close, but you're not there. It's God. It's not church. Religion is not going to fix everything. We see more broken institutions as they go further. As Jesus is arrested and on trial, twice, a governmental court thinks he's innocent, but by public pressure calls him guilty. We see the failure of this government and of these courts. So it's another human institution that has failed. And these human institutions are not evil. They're, they're doing their best. But it raises this ultimate question of where do you place your hope? In the powers of humankind or in the powers of God? As you look out today, when you see problems arise in your life, in our city, in our nation, in the world, where do you put your hope? Is it this president or the next? Is it this politician or the next? Or do you put your hope in God? This issue of where you put your hope was highlighted most of all in the character of Barabbas. Now, I love talking about Barabbas because, uh, can you put up this picture? This is from, I think, The Passion of the Christ. This is how Barabbas is, is portrayed, right? Like, uh, ravenous 
pirate, I, I, you know, pretty, pretty rough looking. Um, there's nothing in scripture about him having a, 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 you know, massive scarring on his face and bad teeth. And th th this is a bit of a dramatization. Um, what we know about Barabbas is that he was arrested for being part of an insurrection that led to murder. And actually from historical documents, you can piece together more of who Barabbas was. And he was actually, uh, if you want to compare him to someone, it's not that. It's, it's William Wallace, right? It's Braveheart. He was trying, he was a, a, a Jewish man who was trying to fight off Rome. Originally they made a pact, they made a treaty, but Rome keeps kind of edging in closer and closer. And so there's some people, they were called um, the Zealots, were trying to incite a war. Because they said, if I can if we do a war, God won't let us lose. And so they're trying to incite a war, and they're doing it through political assassination. Now, for me, that is so much more valuable than, this, than that image. It's probably good to leave it down. That's right. Um, because what you see in this moment, when the two were on stage, and Pilate is saying, you can choose one that I'll release as a Passover celebration. I'll release one of these two prisoners. What we see up there is, is way more than just them choosing an evil man over, over the saint. It's not that. It's where do they place their hope? They know the problem. They're having to ask permission from the Romans in their own land for this. They know the problem. And they're looking up at the stage and they see someone who's going to try and defeat Rome through assassination, through, through violence, defeat a violent empire through violence, or Jesus who they thought might be doing the same, but is doing no such thing. And he comes preaching of a different kind of kingdom. Now, fascinating thing that I, I, I love is um, less than 400 years later, the empire of Rome becomes Christian and is pushing the gospel to all corners of the known world. So you could argue that Jesus actually did. He actually did defeat Rome. But, but once again, let, let's remember and let's put ourselves, visualize this decision. You're in Jerusalem. You're in a crowded courtyard. The crowd is moving. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a foreign nation when you feel like the crowd's moving. Sarah and I were in um, um, Prague, and we thought we were in the middle of a riot. Turns out there was a soccer game. That was it. Um, <laughs> but imagine you're in, you're in a crowd, and it's moving. It's angry. The people who are desperate, and as they look up on the, on the platform, they see two hopes in front of them. The one who has all that mankind has to offer, and the one who is bringing God's kingdom. Where do we put our hope? And to be honest, when I think about that decision of Barabbas versus Jesus, Barabbas does make sense to me. Um, when my wife and I, Sarah, we, we got to go to India a couple years back, and uh, we were visiting uh, her uncle, and um, lives there or lived there. And, and I learned um, about a bunch of different cultures out there, but one of them is, is Sikhs. If you're not familiar with Sikhs, they're um, a people group within India. They, have, like, they wear like very, very tight turbans. Um, but Sikhs have a very interesting history. So uh, they actually, for a long time, were, were known to be pacifists. That they in no way were allowed to defend themselves or anyone else in the community. Well, as you can imagine, in an ancient culture, how that went. Pretty soon, word got around that they cannot defend themselves. Morally, we're not allowed to. And so, over about a century, every surrounding tribe just came in whenever they wanted to. So, we'll take that, we'll take that. And they just, they, 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 they pillaged them, routinely. 
So finally, the Sikhs developed this, this, um, this. it's called a, a kirpan, a kirpan, kirpan. And every Sikh actually wears this at all times underneath their shirt. And I thought this was super fascinating. They changed their, their, their code a little bit. You are still not, not allowed to defend yourself with violence, but you can defend your neighbor. So if they were going to attack, okay, well, I, I'll defend you and your property and your family, and you defend me and my family and my property. So that, that kind of worked. But I bring that up because I think it's fascinating. When we look at that, we say, of course they did. Of course that didn't work as a nation where all your neighbors knew you'd be pacifists. Of course that didn't work. Of course, over time, you had to develop a system of how you're going to defend yourself. Because of course you got taken advantage of. Because that's the way that this world works. So I understand why they chose Barabbas. I understand why the, why the uh, Israelites out of Egypt said, maybe we should go back. Or let's just try and build our own government like the one we came from. Egypt was pretty strong. That must be working well. We resort to what we know. And this idea that you are going to lead like Jesus led seems impossible. I want to highlight the difference between Barabbas' way and Jesus' way. Ross, in that closing reflection song, uh, quoted Jesus in Matthew 16 it said, then Jesus told his disciples, I want, sorry, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who will lose their life for my sake will find it. That is not how our world works. That is different. That is the laws of a, a different kingdom, of a different society. Christ calls us to trust him and to seek God's expanding kingdom as the hope for creation. That we put our hope in his expanding kingdom. But that is difficult in a, a complicated and messy world. So I want to look at three quick examples of how Jesus led. And how Jesus uh, gives the, 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 the essence of his kingdom. versus the kingdom we find in this earth. Matthew 20, 17 through 28 reads this. Actually, we, we read the first part of this earlier. Uh, when he was going up to Jerusalem and says that when he gets there, he will be crucified, right? And we're saying, did they understand this? Well, let's read the next verse, starting in 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit at your right and left hand. He just said, my goal is we're going to go to that city, and I'm going to be executed. And right away, she shows up and says, can, these, can my two boys come with you? Did you, hear, did, did you hear what we just said? Jesus answered him, Do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, We are able. And he said to them, You indeed will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and left hand, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those uh, for whom has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard this, they were angry about the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of Gentiles, uh, the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's kingdom. 
It is not through violence. It is not through might. It is through self-sacrifice and, and self-servitude of putting the others before you. Listen to the second one. It's, it's during the Last Supper when Jesus takes off his outer garments. Jesus is their rabbi, one of the most honored positions in their culture. He is their teacher. They have given their lives to follow. He, he strips his outer clothes off, ties a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. We'll pick up in verse 12. After he had washed their feet, he put on his robe and had returned to the table. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than, than their master, nor messengers greater than the one who sent him. In the earthly world, that is. That doesn't make sense in our understanding, in our context. We say, no, no, in my kingdom it's different. In my kingdom, the greatest serve the least. People don't jockey for position. They, they find how they can serve others around them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And then lastly, this, this is, this is my, my, one of my favorite ones. In Luke 14, Jesus gave this parable earlier on in his ministry. Let's read this real quick. So when he noticed how the guests chose a place of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit at the place of honor in, in case someone more distinguished than you is invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come to you and say, give this person your place. Then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, the lowest seat, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you may be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, it's interesting. If you take some of the Last Supper narratives that we find in a couple of the Gospels and piece them together, you can actually figure out where a couple individuals were sitting. And I think this is fascinating. Can you put up this uh, picture? This is what's called a Seder dinner. Seder was the, was the, the, the meal at Passover. And um, this is the Seder dinner. It's a U-shaped table, and it had, it had a structure. It had an order. So the, the second from the far right would be the position of highest honor. That would be the rabbi. That would be Jesus during the Last Supper. The one person to his right, the dark-bearded man there, well, that's most of them, but the, right, the farthest to his right would be the youngest person in the room because if the person of honor ever needed anything, he'd throw an elbow and say, hey, go get the door. Hey, we're out, we're out of bread, right? You know, whatever, go, go get that. From the, the position of honor left all the way around the table was in rank, of honor. And so in this parable, what Jesus is saying is, don't take the highest seat, just the left of, of the host, and have him come and say, like, you? No, 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 You get up and you go to the end of the table. He says, it is better that you humble yourself, take the lowest seat, and have the master, have, have, have God come to you and say, child, come, sit closer. So this is the framework that he's working with in that parable. But here's what's so interesting. If you piece together a couple of, of, of the narratives, you can figure out where some people are sitting. For instance, it says that Jesus said, the one who betrayed me is the one who is dipping in the same bowl, which means that Judas, since he's not on the right, would have had to be on the left. Judas was sitting in the highest seat of honor. Now you can see in this that the way that you would eat is you would lay on your left elbow and you'd be laying down. It's a very, very low table, close to the ground. You lay on your left elbow, you eat with your right hand. You can imagine your shoulder would start to get sore. This meal took like three hours. 
And you can try this at home if you want to. As your, as your shoulder gets sore, if you lean back, you'll relieve that shoulder. So throughout the meal, when your shoulder gets sore, you lean back and you rest on the person behind you. And, and I cannot imagine the anguish that, that Judas must have been going through this entire meal as, as his rabbi that he is betraying is resting on him. But there's another part of this meal that's so interesting, is that at one point when he's talking about who's going to betray him, you find this in John 13, it says that Peter is motioning to John, asking him what's going on. Which I love just the human nature of this real quick. You know, you've been at a loud dinner party and you can't tell what's going on. But if John's on the far right, you can imagine the only place that Peter can really be sitting would be across the table. John could not be looking to the far corner. He's looking across the table. And this is what's fascinating. is At this point, Jesus has already said, Peter, I will build my church on you. You will be the leader of the church. Every time he has an exclusive moment, he takes Peter, James, and John. And yet at this last meal, I believe Peter had this parable in mind and said, oh, I'm going to do that trick. I'm going to take the lowest seat. Jesus is going to call me up. And Jesus leaves him there. Now, I think that's fascinating. I think that reveals even more of, of, God, of God's kingdom, of Jesus saying, if you are a leader in this kingdom, let me show you what that looks like. You take the worst seat. You serve from the bottom. Peter is left there. Jesus wants to ingrain this in his head, that this is how you lead in his kingdom. And then ultimately, we get the greatest glimpse of this kingdom on the cross. Jesus has spent his entire ministry telling them that my kingdom works different than the one on this earth. And this is not a kingdom through violence. This is not a kingdom through uh, through 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 um, conquering. This is going to be a kingdom built through humility, through self-sacrifice and servitude. And he models it most so by the fact that the creator, God himself, dies on a cross for the created. That doesn't make sense by our worldly standards. The creator suffers for the created that we might experience relationship and unity with him. Tonight, we are going to end in communion and some more worship. And communion is, is intentional in the fact that it's an act of participation. Because we don't spectate the cross. We don't just look at it. We participate with it. Jesus modeled what this is. He gave up everything for us. And he calls his followers to do the same. Not literally. But to lay down our lives, lay down our ambitions, lay down our, our selfish desires, lay down what, what I want in life for what God wants in life. And I can't tell you how different those can be at times. It's hard to not, not let yourself get, get carried away with everything I want in life and begin saying, well, I deserve this. And, and I, versus saying, God, my life is yours. And of course I want things in life. But more than anything, I want to serve in your kingdom and whatever that's going to cost. Communion is participating in this. So as the worship team comes back up and we're going to do this last song of worship, I want you to take a second. Reflect on this decision in this courtyard in Jerusalem. There are two people on the stage. There's Barabbas and there's Jesus. The one who represents 
everything that you can accomplish in your life and your ability to bring yourself peace in your life and the one who represents the kingdom of God, the peace that God can bring. And decide where you're putting your hope. When you reflect on that, you can go ahead and take the elements and then join in these last two songs of worship. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today is hard. Today is a time of reflection on a story that ends in, in death, ends in loss. You sent your son, and at this moment we, we see a, a, a corpse on a grave. We see a burial tomb. But God, I, I pray that we reflect on that act of self-sacrifice. Lord, and we consider, like the people in that courtyard, where is our hope? Is our hope in what I can accomplish in life? Is our hope in the powers that be in our world? Or is our, is our hope in you? Lord, I pray that we can all come to this point of saying, my hope is in you. So just as you went to the cross, Lord, so will I. Lord, I lay down myself. I lay down my ambition. I lay down what I want in my life. And I first come and I bring those to you and say, God, what do you want with me? How can I serve in your kingdom?